right, welcome to episode 18 of the Counter Vortex podcast being recorded on September 15th, 2018. And we're opening up with uh, some music that I found on YouTube entitled Merely Kazakh Folk Song. And given that it's a folk song, I'm assuming that I can use it and not have to worry about copyright. A big shout out to whoever recorded it. I don't know who recorded it, but it was recorded apparently in Xinjiang, China, rather than in Kazakhstan, which is the independent country in Central Asia, which is the land of the Kazakhs. There is also um, a significant Kazakh minority in Xinjiang, the far western region of China. The um, uh, main indigenous group there is uh, the Uyghurs. They're related to the Kazakhs, both Turkic peoples, both indigenous Turkic peoples of Central Asia. So, uh, lovely video there. I urge you to check it out online of a um, of a Kazakh woman at a what looks like some kind of a mountain resort in Xinjiang in her traditional dress and uh, playing a lute-type instrument, probably uh, related to the setar, and um, singing very beautifully against this mountainous backdrop. And uh, I'm opening with this because we're going to be talking about the, about the Kazakh people on this podcast. I'm continuing with uh, the theme which we've been exploring for the, uh, the past couple of shows now, of um, what I call the divide and conquer stratagem, which is the essence of the international state system. And we were uh, discussing the particularly, to me, frustrating and tragic reality that um, indigenous peoples in North America and indigenous peoples in Russia and the greater Eurasian continent um, have been pitted against each other, or at least any serious efforts of solidarity between them have been precluded by the great propaganda game, which is being played by the superpowers. And I was noting how um, RT, Russia Today, which is the propaganda mouthpiece of the Kremlin, was doing very aggressive coverage of the movement against the Dakota Access Pipeline. And um, a lot of activists who were out there, to my mind, doing really, really heroic work on the frigid plains of North Dakota back in the, um, in the fall of 2016, um, were, you know, very happy to be getting all of this favorable coverage from RT. And a lot of them were not aware that Russia itself is also similarly oppressing its own indigenous peoples. And I spoke about the, uh, the struggle of the, the Evenks of Yakushia and the Telenjit of Altai out in the remote stretches of Siberia who have been protesting pipelines that the Russian state and Russian oil companies like Gazprom are attempting to build through their traditional territory. And also speaking about the, um, the struggle of the Crimean Tartars, the indigenous people of the Crimean Peninsula, which, as we know, was illegally annexed by Russia in 2014. And the um, uh, autonomous uh, powers of the, of the Crimean Tartar people were abrogated 
by the new Russian authorities after they took over. And just like, you know, RT was doing vigorous coverage of um, the Dakota Access struggle, um, similarly, Radio Free Europe, which is the essentially the media arm of the, U- of the U.S. State Department, was doing very aggressive coverage of the, um, of the uh, persecution of the Crimean Tartars. And we can imagine that just as, you know, there were uh, people out there in North Dakota protesting the Dakota Access Pipeline who were happy to be getting media coverage from RT, we can also imagine that the Crimean Tartars were happy to be um, getting media coverage from Radio Free Europe. So we've got this really sort of, to my mind, dystopian situation where opposition activists and environmentalists and dissidents and indigenous peoples on either side of the superpower divide are being exploited for propaganda purposes by the rival superpower. And I was, in my rant on the last podcast, calling for... um, activists to, you know, repudiate this divide-and-conquer stratagem and attempt to do what is admittedly the very difficult and challenging work of building solidarity between indigenous peoples and environmentalists and dissidents and opposition and progressive people generally either side of the superpower divide. And I just, while I was um, cogitating on all of this, it occurred to me that there was a really shining example of when um, exactly this sort of thing happened. And uh, really, it began in 1989, which, as I've also discussed in previous con- uh, podcasts, I consider 1989 to have been a... Um, a kind of a utopian moment, a moment when um, uh, windows of utopian possibility seem to be opening on the planet. You had the Tiananmen Square movement in China, and um, you also had the whole wave of revolution that swept through Eastern Europe and brought down the old Stalinist regimes and eventually brought down the East Bloc entirely. And then later in 1991, brought down the Soviet Union. And uh, we all are aware, and there's no need to elaborate on it, how, you know, inevitably it seems like these utopian moments are followed by a period of backlash. And it really, um, you know, in many ways turned into a disaster in the post-communist world, rather than some kind of a um, third way, some kind of socialism with a human face emerging as many of the dissidents that, you know, I was trying to support back then through my uh, group, Neither East Nor West, uh, rather than uh, that, they achieving their dreams of some kind of a um, independent humanistic socialism. Instead, there was a capitalist restoration throughout the post-communist world. And in the cases of Yugoslavia and the Caucasus, um, you know, descent into ethnic war and, you know, horrific explosions of hatred. But nonetheless, there was this utopian moment. And um, in addition to the uh, the revolutions that brought down the, the old Stalinist dictatorships in Eastern Europe, you also had the independence movements 
in the former Soviet republics. And I'm particularly going to be talking about Kazakhstan, which was one of the very first um, former Soviet republics where people began to, to stand up and to protest Soviet rule and to demand their independence. And uh, one particular grievance of the Kazakh people is that um, the Soviet state was testing nuclear weapons on their territory at a, uh, at a test site called Semipalatinsk out there in the steppes of Kazakhstan. And the local indigenous Kazakh inhabitants of the region were being poisoned over the generations, soaring cancers, birth defects, all that sort of thing. And eventually protests began to emerge at the same time that protests were emerging at the Nevada test site run by the Department of Energy here in the United States. And there also, there, were, there was an indigenous people who um, were being disproportionately impacted and in fact, whose lands, whose traditional lands had been usurped for the establishment of a nuclear weapons testing site. And I'm talking about the Western Shoshone people. They call their homeland Noe Segobia, if I am pronouncing it correctly. It encompasses most of what is now the state of Nevada, mostly the eastern areas of what is now the state of Nevada. And um, it was actually titled to them in a treaty, the 1863 Treaty of Ruby Valley. Almost all of what is now Nevada was um, titled to the Western Shoshone people at that time. And, well, guess what? The treaty wasn't honored. Surprise, surprise. And uh, with the uh, Nevada gold rush and the general uh, westward expansion following the Civil War, uh, the great majority of um, the Western Shoshone lands, which had been titled to them by the 1863 treaty, were usurped. And for the most part, taken over directly by the federal government, came under the control um, in large part of uh, what's now the Bureau of Land Management, but um, also eventually came under the control of the Federal Department of Energy. Well, initially it was the Atomic Energy Commission, but then later became the uh, Department of Energy for the establishment of the Nevada test site, where um, over the years there were 670 underground nuclear tests which took place. And I believe some of them in the early years may have even been atmospheric, but certainly um, hundreds of underground nuclear tests took place at the, um, at the Nevada test site over the years. And um, again, in the same period of the Cold War end game, uh, I think beginning in uh, 1988, 89, people began to, uh, people began to protest there. The, um, uh, Western Shoshone residents of that area of Nevada, um, as well as their um, anti-nuclear and environmentalist allies, began to actually breach Energy Department land and um, or land which is under the control of the Energy Department. Actually, Western Shoshone land, and uh, engage in civil disobedience actions and demand for the closure of the nuclear test site. And they became aware 
that the um, that the Kazakh people were similarly demanding the closure of the Semapalatinsk test site out there in Kazakhstan, and they actually began to coordinate their protests. And there were actually exchanges where Kazakh activists came to Nevada and Western Shoshone activists went to Kazakhstan and went to Semipalatinsk and joined with the protest there. The uh, situation of the usurpation of the land of the, uh, of the Kazakh people follows a fairly um, similar trajectory. Uh, there had been really, that's the most remote part of Central Asia, Kazakhstan. And, you know, there had been um, various empires in um, uh, Uzbekistan and uh, so on, the areas to the south, um, which at, at, at times had control, you know, the empires of Genghis Khan and Tamerlane and so on, had, you know, a sort of a tenuous control over Kazakhstan, but they never really had very firm control. And basically it was a um, uh, decentralized khanate, as they were called, of the indigenous Kazakh people themselves, who were largely nomadic. Uh, I think there was a brief period in the 16th century when there was actually a, um, a, a Kazakh Khanate and the area was actually united under Kazakh rule, but generally it was um, fairly decentralized, you know, um, small Khanates under, under Kazakh rule until the 18th century when um, the Russian Empire came in and, um, and conquered the area and began to colonize it. So a fairly similar trajectory here between, uh, you know, you could draw a very clear parallel between what befell the, um, the Western Shoshone in what's now Nevada and the, uh, the Kazakhs. Um, about, a, about a century apart, actually. It happened um, in Kazakhstan with the Russians first. So um, eventually, you know, as a part of the whole uh, coming the end of the Cold War, um, these struggles were successful. I mean, the Nevada test site remains under the control of the Energy Department. I believe now it's been renamed the National Security Site because they aren't actually... Uh, the nuclear testing that they're doing there now is... Um, I'm not entirely sure how it works, but it's sort of um, uh, computer simulated. They aren't actually setting off... Um, actual nuclear warheads under the ground out there. The last time actual um, nuclear testing took place at the Nevada test site was in 1992. And uh, the last time, I believe the last time that uh, the Russians actually conducted any tests at uh, Semipalatinsk in Kazakhstan was in, um, it was in 1989. And then, you know, they realized that, you know, Kazakhstan was getting a little bit out of hand. People there were getting restive and eventually of course, in 1991, Kazakhstan did achieve its independence with the collapse of the Soviet Union. For a while, the um, Russians continued to carry out nuclear tests at a, um, an island in the Arctic Sea off the coast of Russia by the name of Novaya Zemlaya. I think the last test there was in 1991. And similarly, that is also indigenous land. The various um, Samoyedic peoples, as they are called, if I'm not mistaken, related to the the Samai or the or the Laps, who were the indigenous peoples, as we all know of um, of Finland and northern Scandinavia. Um, related peoples um, exist along, you know, the the Arctic littoral of um, of Russia, and um, similarly, their lands were being impacted by the the Russian test, which continued at 
Novaya Zemlaya, at least through 1991. Um, eventually, there, um, the uh, Nevada Semipalatinsk movement, as it was called, which was bringing together the Western Shoshone and the Kazakhs against nuclear testing in principle, opposed to nuclear testing both by the United States in Nevada and by the Soviets and the Russians in Kazakhstan. Eventually, this um, effort evolved into an organization which still exists today called Abolition 2000, the global network to eliminate nuclear weapons. And um, as recently as 2016, they held a, um, a conference in Astana, the capital of Kazakhstan, on building a nuclear weapons-free world, which um, I understand was actually attended by Western Shoshone leaders. So um, this, uh, you know, sort of this, this sort of cross-fertilization, this relationship of solidarity, which was established between the Western Shoshone and the, the Kazakhs way back in 1989, 1990, persists today. Those uh, ties of solidarity are um, are still alive. So this, to me, is a real shining example of um, of what is possible. That you know, it, it isn't necessary that we get caught up in the propaganda game and you know the great uh, geopolitical chessboard and 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 people who are essentially struggling for the same things in Russia, the United States, China, etc. We don't have to be pitted against each other. We can actually unite and make common cause against both of our respective or all of our respective oppressors. So, uh, you know, all of this was taking place, by the way, you know, just before the advent of the Internet, you know, <laughs> so very, very little of this is online. You know, if, it, if the Internet had come along just a few years earlier or if this was all playing itself out just a few years later, there would be uh, this whole um, episode would be much more well known than in fact it actually is. But, um, you know, as fate would have it, uh, a lot of this movement has just gone down the memory hole. So the, there's not nearly as many resources online as um, as one would hope about the whole uh, Nevada Semipalatinsk movement and the uh, ties of solidarity between the Western Shoshone and the Kazakhs. I am going to put together, when I um, create a page on my website, countervortex.org, for this podcast, it will include many links to online resources. So uh, please just watch that page, countervortex.org, um, with you know a link to the resources online that I was able to find about all of this. It took some digging. I just want to point out before we wrap up here that, um, you know, this dynamic of superpowers using the usurped lands of indigenous peoples for nuclear testing with their, you know, attendant, absolutely horrific health and genetic and environmental impacts has repeated itself over and over and over again. In the um, early 1960s, the French were conducting nuclear tests at a, um, a test site they um, called Gerboise Blue, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, at a place which was known to the indigenous Tuareg and Berber and Arab people 
of the interior Sahara, who are, again, nomadic peoples maintaining caravan routes across the desert, known to them as Tanez Ruft, if I am pronouncing it correctly. I believe that is a Tuareg name. And uh, the tests at this site actually continued even after, even a few years after Algeria became independent, which is really hard to believe because it was such a a bitter struggle. The, uh, you know, Algerian War of Independence was such a, a brutal affair and there was such bad feeling on both sides. And yet somehow the French managed to wrest the condition from the uh, newly independent Algerian government that they were going to continue to be able to carry out their nuclear testing at this site out there in the desert, partially because it was, I suppose, it was way out there in the middle of the desert. And the, uh, the Algerian government itself considered it to be, you know, a backwater, which was just the land of Tuareg nomads, and we don't really care about them. So uh, the nuclear test continued even for a while after um, Algerian independence from France in, I believe, 1962. And uh, similarly, you know, a vast stretch of desert was, was left contaminated with, um, with radiation, And there was never any sufficient warning given to the nomadic peoples who traverse the desert in their caravans, even to this day. And uh, they continued to uh, cross through this contaminated area and suffered the devastating consequences in cancers and birth defects and so on. Uh, Britain carried out its nuclear testing program in the 1960s at um, various locations in Australia generally either remote islands off the coast or very remote areas in the deserts of the interior, which, of course, were aboriginal lands. Um, The Chinese nuclear test site was, surprise, surprise, in Xinjiang, the area in far western China, which we have discussed previously, which is the homeland of um, the Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslim people, such as the Kazakhs which is a colonized territory. And in fact, they, the, the, the actual name Xinjiang itself means Western territory. So that's sort of a Sino-centric name. The, uh, the Uyghurs don't call it that. They call it East Turkestan or Uyghurstan. So also a colonized territory. And um, the uh, Chinese established their nuclear test site there at a place called Lap Nor. And I understand that there's also something of a... Um, a Tibetan population around Lapnor as well. Ethnic Tibetans are not only found in the so-called Tibetan Autonomous Region of China, but um, there's a sort of a larger sphere that they, some people call Greater Tibet, which also extends into um, Sichuan, Qinghai, and um, and Xinjiang as well. So there are both um, Uyghur and Tibetan peoples in the area of Lapnor, I understand, who similarly were, you know, their territory was just sort of used as this, you know, remote, expendable, out-of-the-way place out there in, you know, a distant, a distant arid plain uh, where the Chinese could test their nuclear weapons. Similarly, uh, the French, after they finally got booted out of Algeria, resumed nuclear testing in uh, French Polynesia. And uh, some of the last nuclear tests which ever took place on the planet in fact, we're at these two locations at uh, Mururoa Atoll in French Polynesia in 1995 and at um, Lapnor, where the Chinese carried out their last nuclear test out there in, in Xinjiang 
1996. Those were the last um, live nuclear tests which, which took place on planet Earth. And um, the, uh, uh, the French test at Mururoa Atoll actually um, sparked local protest by the people of Tahiti, which is a French colonized territory. Back in 1995, there was sort of a local intifada, a local Polynesian uprising, a Polynesian intifada, you could say, in, um, in Tahiti against the, um, against the French nuclear testing, which was very roughly put down by um, French colonial gendarmes. That was the last episode of um, protest against nuclear weapons testing that I'm aware of that took place anywhere on the planet. But this issue has not gone away over the past 10 years or so. Um, both the United States and Russia have been developing uh, uh, what they're calling a new generation of nuclear weapons, trying to modernize their uh, nuclear weapon systems. And uh, the, uh, the two countries on the planet right now, which are actually adding to their nuclear arsenals, actually developing new nuclear warheads rather than dismantling the old ones, are uh, China and India, which are engaged in their own nuclear arms race quite frightening. And uh, there are significantly fewer nuclear warheads on the planet now than there were back in the 1980s. You know, back in the 1980s, primarily the United States and the Soviet Union, but also China, France, and the United Kingdom. And then there were the undeclared nuclear powers. I'll talk about them in a minute. Uh, You know, but, but between them, they also had, uh, you know, they, they had enough nuclear weapons to destroy the world, maybe something like 20 times over. <laughs> now, we don't have the ability to destroy the world 20 times over, but we still have the ability to destroy the world once. Both the United States and Russia and the, you know, lesser nuclear-armed superpowers have got enough, we- enough nuclear weapons even now that um, if they were all detonated, heaven forbid... Um, it would bring on nuclear winter and essentially destroy civilization, certainly destroy civilization, quite possibly destroy the human race and make the planet uninhabitable for the human species. And uh, yeah, you know, having the ability to only do that once as opposed to the ability to do that, say, 20 times over is progress, I suppose. But, you know, you really only have to do it once because there's only one Earth, right? There's only one planet. (laughs) So um, uh, nuclear weapons are not an issue which has gone away by any stretch of the imagination. And, uh, you know, in fact, you know, you could say that probably at the moment, uh, U.S.-Russia tensions are now at, you know, their worst point than they've been since the end of the Cold War. And, you know, literally war could be just a shot away uh, you know, actual war between the U.S. and Russia. One tries not to think about these things, but literally it could be a shot away in Syria where, you know, both the U.S. and Russia have got warplanes which have been bombing the Syrian people. And uh, there have been occasions where the U.S. has either accidentally or intentionally um, bombed Russian-backed or even Russian forces. It was actually one... Um, incident uh, earlier this year where it seems like Russian mercenaries, irregular irregular troops rather than actual official, uh, you know, um, troops of the Russian armed forces were in fact um, bombed in U.S. airstrikes. So, uh, 
you know, the two superpowers could be eyeball to eyeball tomorrow. And, you know, we're used to thinking since the end of the Cold War of it being a unipolar world and there's only one superpower. But I would say that Russia, you know, is becoming a resurgent superpower. And, uh, you know, the left has got, you know, the anti-war left in this country has got a very funny attitude about this, um, this whole notion of a unipolar world. Uh, on one hand, we're supposed to um, to welcome the erosion of the unipolar world, and we're supposed to welcome the uh, emergence of a multipolar world where, um, you know, the U.S. is not the only imperial power. Uh, but then, you know, as Russia, again, rises to the level of being what we can call an imperial power, such as it was during the Cold War, and as China is also beginning to rise to the level of really being an imperial power on the global stage. We're not supposed to have any criticism of them. If we're anti-imperialist, we should have a single standard anti-imperialism and, you know, be just as critical of Russia and China as we are of the United States. And if we're supposed to accept the fact that we're going into a multipolar world, then we should also have a criticism of the multipolar world, just as we had a criticism of the unipolar world. So, uh, you know, as we all know, the uh, five official nuclear nations under the uh, the NPT, the um, Non-Proliferation Treaty, are the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, United States, Russia, which has now stepped into the former Security Council seat of the Soviet Union, Great Britain, France, and China. Those are the official nuclear weapons, the ones which are sort of allowed under the treaty to have nuclear weapons. Then there are the um, the uh, uh, sort of the unofficial nuclear weapon states, some of which are signatory to the NPT, some of which are not, but uh, none of which are actually, quote unquote, allowed to have nuclear weapons under the NPT. And uh, most significantly, those are India, Pakistan, North Korea, which has been very much in the news, and Israel, which we're not supposed to talk about, but nonetheless, you know, they've never actually acknowledged that they have the nuclear weapon, but it's it's kind of an open secret that they do. Um, I'm going to note one glimmer of hope here, okay? One very significant glimmer of hope, because this is, you know, kind of, <laughs> I'm talking about glimmers of hope in this podcast tonight, in, in addition to, you know, noting the basically grim situation of, um, you know, potential superpower conflict and continued um, nuclear stockpiling. Um, also significant glimmers of hope, just like the whole Nevada Semipalatinsk movement represented a real glimmer of hope, which to me could still be an inspiration for us today. Another glimmer of hope. Back in the 1980s, there were nine nuclear-powered countries on Earth. There were the five permanent members of the Security Council, which I just mentioned, and there was India, Pakistan, Israel, and the last was apartheid South Africa. And when uh, you know Nelson Mandela came to power in 1994, he became, this is something which he gets very, very little credit for, one of the most important things that he did, and hardly anybody even knows it. He became the only leader in the history of the world who willingly, and not even under any international pressure, willingly dismantled his own country's nuclear weapons and disbanded his own country's nuclear weapons program. Because essentially, 
uh, apartheid South Africa developed the bomb with, I will point out, um, technical support from Israel, and I believe it would have been the early 1980s, in order to intimidate the other nations of Southern Africa, what were then called the frontline states, um, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, uh, Botswana, Namibia, who were um, um, supporting the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. And uh, again, it was never really officially declared that they had the uh, nuclear weapon, but it was kind of an open secret. And they wanted the world to know because they wanted the frontline states to be intimidated. Well, obviously, when apartheid ended and um, South Africa became a democracy, um, that was no longer an issue. And uh, of course, you know, there was no longer any political imperative whatsoever for, um, for South Africa to continue to have the bomb. So uh, Nelson Mandela had it dismantled, had all of the nuclear weapons dismantled and essentially shut down the, uh, the nuclear weapons development program, which had been developed by the apartheid state. So to me, this is a, um, you know, uh, this, this is the, the evidence that you have right there that, yes, it is possible. Nuclear disarmament is, in fact, possible. Dismantling all these damn bombs and, and shutting down the uh, nuclear weapons production programs is possible. Just like it was possible in South Africa, it's possible in the United States, in Russia, in China, in Great Britain, in France, in India, in Pakistan. And of course, you know, just like we were at nine back in the um, back in the 1980s with the addition of, um, of South Africa. Well, you know, after 20 years or so of being at eight, now we're back up to nine again, because um, over the past 10 years or so, um, North Korea has developed the bomb. And uh, of course, you know, there's been a lot of to-do about that, and it is a very terrifying development. But um, we should also be cognizant that uh, this, you know, the issue with, with nuclear weapons is not just an issue of North Korea. It's an issue for all of the other nation states which continue to have nuclear weapons today. Uh, so we still have the ability to destroy the world with nuclear weapons. And, you know, I'll point out that, um, uh, you know, E.P. Thompson, the great... British Marxist historian uh, who became a leader of the uh, nuclear disarmament movement back in the 1980s wrote a really brilliant essay called Notes on Exterminism, where um, he uh, saw that uh, we were entering into a um, a situation with the nuclear arms race of the 1980s where um, uh, the superpowers were on a trajectory towards nuclear conflict and that the whole um, nuclear production system and the whole, uh, you know, hair trigger mm, nuclear launch system, you know, the, 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 the sort of the technological imperative or trajectory sort of taken on a life of its own, which was propelling us towards, um, towards the use of nuclear weapons and the potential extermination of civilization. And, you know, we came back from the brink with the end of the Cold War, but there's a certain sense that we are now approaching the brink once again. And I would also argue that um, uh, E.P. Thompson's whole theory of exterminism is one which um, needs to be expanded because you could sort of see, uh, you know, nuclear extermination as, you know, merely doing in one fell swoop, as it were, what um, the ordinary workaday functioning 
of the capitalist system is doing every day, which is to say the slow death of the biosphere by shredding the basic life support systems of the planetary biosphere through uh, changing the carbon levels in the atmosphere and destroying the rainforests and, you know, it's basic, basically shredding the, um, the, 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 the basic life support systems of, of planet Earth, which is what the capitalist system and the industrial leviathan across the globe is doing day by day. It, this, we are essentially bringing about the slow death of the biosphere, as opposed to nuclear war, which would be the fast death of the biosphere. And, um, you know, in evolutionary terms, even, you know, the slow death of the biosphere, which is being affected by the normal functioning of the capitalist system, even that is but the the twinkling of an eye, if you really take the long-term view. I mean, even if we don't have nuclear war, which could potentially get rid of the human race in a matter of days... <laughs> Uh, the normal functioning of the capitalist system could get rid of the human race over the course of the next century or so if global warming goes on unabated and so on. So um, we have to oppose exterminism as a system, which means opposing nuclear weapons and um, also opposing, as I say, the normal functioning of the capitalist system and, you know, the destruction of the rainforests, the, you know, turning the last natural places on earth into, into, into post-industrial wastelands, which have been completely exploited. And here, once again, it is um, indigenous peoples all over the world who are paying the highest price for this. And indigenous peoples all over the world, whether it was uh, the Lakota standing up to um, the people who were building the Dakota Access Pipeline out in, out in, uh, out in North Dakota, or whether it's, you know, the Quechua people in Peru who have been standing up to um, Newmont Mining, which is trying to um, turn these high alpine lakes up in the Andes into open pit mines um, uh, at the, um, in Cajamarca in Peru. You know, it's indigenous peoples who are being impacted the most, the first, by this exterminist system, which ultimately holds the potential to do all of us in. And also because of this, it's indigenous peoples who are, you know, disproportionately on the front line fighting it. So um, we're basically facing the same threat all over the world. Just earlier this year, there was a very interesting parallel to um, the situation in Cajamarca in Peru, where the Quechua people have been standing up to a, uh, a mining company, a U.S. mining company, which wants to destroy their, ha- their, their high alpine lakes and turn it into an open pit mine. Uh, there was a similar situation in uh, in a Tibetan region of um, Qinghai province in China, where um, a mining company in um, Yushul, Tibetan Autonomous Prefecture of Qinghai province, was similarly um, trying to um, to begin mining operations on the traditional lands of the um, of the Tibetan peasants in this high plateau region. And they um, actually, you know, stood up to the representatives of the Chinese mining company, which was attempting to destroy their lands. And uh, there was actually, you know, a, a riot and some repression. The police were brought in. Several people were arrested. You can read about this on my website, Tibetans Clash with Police and Mine Protest. That's the headline. You can search for it. So, um, again, we're facing the same enemy all over the world. And it is absolutely imperative that we unite and fight the powers that be, whether those powers are gringo, North American, or they're 
Russian or the representatives of the Chinese state, doesn't matter. It's all the same industrial and military leviathan, which is ultimately destroying the planet and threatening the survival of the human species. And if we do not unite as a human species and launch real, serious, principled, unswerving, militant opposition, I mean, basically, we've had it. And just because I've been talking about, um, about Xinjiang, I would be quite remiss if I did not mention uh, once again what's uh, been in the news recently is that now, you know, it appears due to reports from human rights groups that um, Chinese authorities have undertaken a mass detention program of the, the Uyghur people in Xinjiang and possibly up to a million have now been detained in re-education camps without charge because essentially it looks like the Chinese authorities are very, you know, I'm afraid that there's going to be, um, uh, you know, a separatist movement in the region and they're taking, uh, you know, measures to head it off through this kind of completely, utterly, hideously draconian repression. And of course, that kind of thing never works. It's only going to further fuel whatever separatist sentiment exists amongst the Uyghurs. And uh, again, a particular frustration here has been that uh, the United States State Department has been protesting the mass detention of the Uyghurs by Chinese authorities at the same time that here in the United States, the Trump administration is putting in place its own embryonic mass detention system with the um, uh, detention of, um, of migrants from uh, Mexico and Central America along the, um, along the southwestern border. And it was just reported this week that the uh, immigration authorities here in the United States have still, even now, have 12,800 migrant children detained. And this is an atrocity. This may not be an atrocity of the scale of 1 million, potentially up to 1 million Uyghurs detained, but it's still an atrocity. And it still, um, you know, points to, again, you know, the fact that there's kind of an embryonic mass detention system, which is already in place here in the United States. So uh, once again, you know, the State Department making hay for propaganda purposes of the mass detention of the Uyghurs, we have to understand is hypocrisy. And it's up to us and it's up to the Uyghurs and it's up to their supporters all over the world. And it's up to the international human rights community to unswervingly and uncompromisingly oppose both the mass detention of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang and the embryonic mass detention system, which is being put into place here in the United States. So uh, that's all I've got to say about it for tonight. Um, I hope people found this enlightening. And um, again, you know, I just view the Nevada Semipalatinsk movement as such a um, as such an inspiration and uh, and and such a uh, a shining example of um, the kind of international solidarity which is not only necessary but has been proven by the Kazakhs and by the Western Shoshone to be possible in spite of everything. I need to give a shout out to Jacqueline Cabasso of Abolition 2000, the Global Network to Eliminate Nuclear Weapons, and also of the Western States Legal Foundation out in Berkeley, California, who um, very generously gave some telephone time to me so I could uh, pick her brain 
about the Nevada Semipalatinsk movement, which she was involved in way back in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Thank you very much, Jackie. And um, again, please uh, be in touch. Tell us what you think. Even if you think I'm full of beans, just weigh in, leave a comment. I'd really appreciate it. This has been the Counter Vortex. Join us online at countervortex.org. Everything I've been ranting about is on my website. I'm Bill Weinberg, and rant on you next time. Yeah.